0: Please listen carefully. carefully, 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 carefully,
1: carefully. Welcome to Utterly Moderate, a podcast where two reasonable social scientists analyze important topics. We clear away the politics, opinions, and ideologies to get to the facts. We like to think of ourselves as the opposite of cable news. I'm Allison Dagnus, I'm a political scientist.
2: And I'm Lauren Seppard. I'm a sociologist. How are you doing today, Allie?
1: I am feeling good. I am feeling fortunate and I'm feeling like I am covered. At least I will be in two days because I'm getting my first COVID vaccine. Oh, I'm jealous.
2: I know. I know. I'm
1: rubbing it in everyone's face. I'm just kidding. I'm I'm not actually. Wait,
2: how did it take so long? I mean, at your age, you should have been at the front of the line. I
1: I really should have been. Yeah. It's so, it's so very, very true. Um, Hey, no, that's completely fair. Uh, And whenever I do get those AARP card applications, (laughs) I throw them out because I am incredibly vain. And so even though it would get me a discount, maybe when we can travel uh yeah nope not worth it absolutely not worth it but well, yeah i'm
2: still jealous of you so well, thank you congratulations i'm glad ah, you're getting it.
1: thank you thank you yeah it's the great combination of being a professor who teaches face-to-face and also having had breast cancer um uh, and that by the way that is that is a gift that keeps on giving <laughs> does my does my left leg swell up with edema because of my mastectomy yes but am i getting a COVID shot on saturday Yes. I'm going to call it an even. It's it's
2: a push. If you visit utterlymoderate.com right now, you can get t-shirts that <laughs> mastectomies are the gift that keep on Keeps giving. on giving. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Canceled in five. I, four. <laughs> <laughs> my, oh my. <laughs> well, in all seriousness, I am very happy that you're getting the vaccine. And uh, that makes me happy. And I'm not a very happy you know, optimistic guy usually. And I'm also feeling very good because it seems like we're starting to turn a corner. I mean, there's a lot of hard work still to do and none of us should be, you know, complacent. I mean, we should, you know, double down on our efforts to, to kick this thing. But um, there was a quote in a piece by Derek Thompson today in the Atlantic that really had me feeling pretty good. He says, although the pandemic isn't over, We have perhaps reached the beginning of the end of COVID 19 as an exponential, existential, and mortal threat to our healthcare system and our senior population. End quote. So I don't know. I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good. How about you?
1: Oh, I'm feeling fantastic. I mean, I have a couple raves scheduled for, you know, after I get my second shot. Um, it's going to be nothing but huge, huge inside group meetings. Um, it's going to be a lot of like hugging. Um, no, I, I am feeling really good. I'm feeling a more positive, I think, than I have been in the past because it not only are things looking better in terms of the numbers, um, but also we can kind of see spring, like it's really far away and the groundhog was right. Uh, so we we do have to <laughs> wait a, a couple more weeks, um, maybe a month or maybe two, um, but it, it's on its way. So we are looking ahead to warmer weather, um, to more vaccines for more people and to those numbers continuing to come down. I think it's all a really good thing.
2: So you have some rave schedule. This is a midlife kind of thing. Like, are you going to start using young people language now, like on fleek and no cap (laughs) like my buddies, Andy and Jonathan do?
1: I am hip. All of the kids say that I am the coolest of the elderly professors. And (laughs) um, and I tell that to my 15 year old daughter. She rolls her eyes and gets on Instagram and ignores me. So I feel very, very young. I feel like I'm plugged into the to the lingo, to what the kids are saying right now.
2: Yeah. uh, The lingo. Uh, Before we move on and talk about anything else, I just need to pause for a second because you just reminded me, you know, some of your first work was about sex scandals in politics, right?
1: It wasn't my first work. I like to think of it as my best work. Some of your best
2: work. Yeah, absolutely. Now it's out there. I don't know why this was triggered in my brain, but how did your family handle that when you were doing constant tv and you know media about sex and politics how does that go
1: well um actually it was so my my daughters the way this all came about is is through a conversation that turned into a conference paper that turned into a, a book uh, that i edited with eight other professors about political sex scandals so you know, when the phone call started coming in, I remember when Anthony Wiener um, was caught for the second time sexting somebody that was not um, his wife, Huma Abedin. Uh, I was in Mexico on fam- vacation with my entire extended family, and I was sitting by the pool doing interviews over the phone. <laughs> and so um, so the kids uh, were a little bit confused and um and my father is, is like this great 50-50 of like, pride, that's my daughter, and shame. Why is she talking about that all at the same time? So I like to keep people kind of off balance, and this seems to really do the trick.
2: Worst family vacation ever. So anyway, what do we have on tap today, Allie?
1: Well, as much fun as it is to talk about political sex scandals, and it is, um, I am very excited That today we are joined by Dr. Ida Bergstrom, who is a doctor of internal medicine at the Farragut Medical and Travel Care Center in Washington, D.C. She has been, she grew up in uh, and around D.C. a little bit uh, and then came back in 2002 and has been there since then. Um, We are very lucky to be joined by Dr. Bergstrom, who's going to be talking today about COVID. So, Ida, thank you so much for joining
2: us. Yes. Thank you. We are really lucky to have your perspective on this.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: We should just remind our listeners that, uh, Ida has come off of a long shift herself today. <laughs> uh, and we are taping this late in the evening after supper on a weekday, um, because she did not skip out on her normal job, her, her, uh, you know, her, her, um, her day job in order to do this. So um, So
1: in other words, we're part of the problem.
2: Yes. (laughs) We are asking a very busy doctor to spend
1: more time at night. We apologize, America. Sorry about that. Yes, our fault. Yeah. So I happen to know that, Ida, you live in the same neighborhood as Anthony Fauci. And I also happen to know that last spring, I believe, um, you made signs that said, Thank you, Dr. Fauci. And you sold them and donated the money to charity. And he saw these signs. So can you tell us this story? Because I think it's a really good news story. Oh, sure. Um, so one of my neighbors,
0: who's also a physician, had said, you know, oh, we should go and, you know, put a sign out, out front of Dr. Fauci's house and just saying thank you. And, you know. And I, or, and another person wanted to write him a letter at his home. And I said, you know, that's probably not a good idea because he's been getting um, a lot of threats and that sort of seems weird. And we don't want to identify where he lives. But maybe if a few of us in the neighborhood put up signs, that then, you know, he and his wife, he used to be a big runner. Now I think he does a lot more walking, but um, they were all often walking through the neighborhood. And I thought, that might you know be nice to be supportive his, if his neighbors are supportive, and um, it quickly outgrew what my initial thought was because uh, it was it just took off like wildfire, and people loved it and they couldn't get enough of it. And it was actually a little bit more in the summertime because my boys were riding their bikes around to do the delivering. And if we were going to be a little bit outside of our neighborhood, we would drive. And But people from all over wanted us to mail them to Maine. I had someone asking from Paris. And, um, and what I did actually is I encouraged people to start kind of their own community thank you signs. Um, our proceeds were all going to a group here in D.C. called Life Pieces to Masterpieces. And we ended up raising over $4,500 to donate to them. And they were thrilled, as you can imagine, because um, they were helping out with a lot of pandemic relief. And we got to meet a lot of our neighbors and my boys got to learn about doing something to recognize somebody else, um, as well as, you know, get a little exercise. And it was really a win-win. It it was a lot of fun and um, we just enjoyed it.
1: There was actually a Washington Post article that was written about this. And so um, we can link to that in the show notes so everybody can read it for themselves.
2: Yes. If you go to utterlymoderate.com and go to the episode archives, along with this episode will be companion resources and we will include that newspaper article. Okay, Ida. So a lot of us are very worn down. We've heard the guidelines over and over and over again. But just as a reminder, because... When things are getting better, that's the time to actually double down and make sure we get rid of this thing. Let's do a PSA for folks. Um, Best practices, what should we be doing to play our part to prevent community spread?
0: So what's important is to think about a layered approach. Any one thing isn't going to be perfect. So if you do a few different things, you're going to have a much stronger protection. So hand-washing, keeping distance, so making sure that you're staying six feet apart from people and wearing a mask or two. Uh, it depends on the type of mask. So right now, the um, N95s are the best, but those are still recommended for only people who are working in a healthcare setting. There are other versions of masks. And the one of the most important things is going to be the fit. You want something that is tight fitting around your face, covering both, obviously, the nose and the mouth. So whether that's a KN95 or two masks, one surgical and one perhaps cloth over it. Um, Some people use a cloth over the KN95 just to help promote longevity of the KN95, um, but that's not needed for necessarily added benefit. Um, the masks are incredibly important inside. And then when you're outside, I think a single mask is fine. And I think, uh, you know, especially if you're outside exercising, it might be harder to breathe through two masks. But um, the guidelines say the N95 is the best, but that's for healthcare workers. KN-N95 is the second best. And that's maybe just one percentage point difference. You don't need another mask on top of that but you do need to make sure that it fits well. If you want to use a cloth mask on top of that, just to help it last longer, that's perfectly fine. We, in my family, we wear two surgical masks um, and make sure that they fit tightly. So with children, you, know, you want to make sure that you get one that's sized appropriate for them. Some people knot or twist the ear loops to get a tighter fit. And then you can push in the sides so that there's no pockets or openings. Wearing an N95 all day long is really difficult. So um, I know everyone wants to get their hands on an N95, but it's uncomfortable. So I want, you know, no mask is going to work if you're not wearing it. So making sure that you find something that's comfortable and is tight fitting is going to be the best.
1: Where are we now? We are, we are taping this in the middle to end of February, what's going on now with COVID? What are you seeing with your patients? What are you excited about? What are you worried about?
0: So right now we're seeing, um, this is sort of an interesting time. The cases are falling fairly rapidly. So our peak, which was perhaps uh, at some point in January where we had at one point over 300,000 cases, in a single day. We now, I think are are around 80 something thousand. So that's a precipitous drop. And that's kind of where we were towards the end of October. So it's still way too high, but it's a huge improvement. And our testing is much better. People are having much better access to tests all different types of tests, including ones that can be done more rapidly. So there was a time in August where we were waiting up to two weeks sometimes for people's results. And now I just got my results that I did yesterday afternoon. I got them back last night around 8.30. And the courier picks up the labs at five and the results were finished by 8.30. So that's pretty impressive. And uh, we are rolling out with some vaccines. It's never it's not enough. It's certainly not meeting what our demand is. But there seems to be that the wheels are getting in motion. And last Friday, I think they did over two million vaccines in one day. Our you know, our weather has thrown a kink in that distribution plan. Um, But I think we are in a good spot where the cases are coming down. People are getting vaccinated. We have these new variants. We don't exactly know what to make of that yet, but we're hopefully at a crossroads. Most people are saying things might get a little bit worse before they get better. But I think this summer we are going to see a huge
1: light at the end of the tunnel coming into full view. You said the cases were falling. Um, Is there a a good understanding of why cases, the case numbers are falling right now?
0: It's not believed to really be due to the vaccines because the vaccines haven't been given to enough people. Mm -hmm. What they think happened was, first of all, the spike happened because of the holidays. And there were a lot more get togethers around the holidays than everyone was hoping for. And now that's not happening as much. There's not as much travel. And people, I think, are starting to be more cognizant of the social distancing and the mask wearing. You know, you have a group of people that are really burnt out with all of that because they've been doing that all along. But then you have another group that are sort of saying, aha, you know, this actually is important and maybe we should be doing this. And I think in general... A lot more people are taking these recommendations and guidelines more seriously than they ever have.
2: Ida, can you talk about the need to stay vigilant? So it seems like, at least in some areas of the country, when we've made progress against the virus, maybe folks have become a little bit complacent, which has led to this sort of whiplash effect where the virus then becomes resurgent. And I don't mean to suggest that like this isn't a natural tendency, We've been doing this for a long time and many of us just want some sort of freedom from this virus. And I do think it's somewhat natural to want to ease things a little bit when, you know, things start to get a little bit better. But, you know, I I think maybe now when cases are falling, it only means that we should be redoubling our efforts to eradicate this thing rather than take the foot off the pedal, become complacent and um, maybe reverse some of the progress that we've made. Can you give us some guidance on that?
0: So this is the yin and the yang. You have public health out on one side saying, we need to stay distance, We need to stay masked. We can't eat inside. And then you have, you know, the economy on the other side and people are desperate to earn a living and they need their restaurants opened. They need things to get back to normal. And so the people who are making these decisions are being caught between a rock and a hard place. I believe. Um, I mean, if you read about, for example, some of these states that are loosening their restrictions, the health departments are saying, "No, no, no, it's too soon." But everyone else is saying, "Oh, it's not soon enough. We need to get back." And um, there's there's a conflict. And I'm not sure, you know, you can hear arguments on both ends. Obviously, I'm in medicine, so i'm I understand the medical health, public health aspects of it. But I also understand the realities of needing to survive uh, in your business.
2: so Ida, can you tell us a little bit about when the virus first hit and your experiences and those people that you know who are frontline workers and just all of the folks in your social network who are, are medical professionals, what it felt like when the, the tsunami kind of hit the first time?
0: Well, um, speaking for myself, it was definitely overwhelming. And I think we didn't know what to expect, but um, I rewrote my well. I switched bedrooms. I had a whole, you know, I had extra Outfits, so that when I came home, I went right down to the basement. I took off my scrubs that I had been wearing that day, and I started washing those. And I went up and took a shower before I greeted anyone in my family and um, my friend. You know, I know of people who slept in a hotel instead of being at home with their family, and um, it was really, really scary because we just didn't know what was going to happen. And, um, and I think, you know, as a physician, you always know that you might be exposed. I mean, we, we certainly knew that with HIV, when that was first, I was a resident when that was first sort of, um, you know, a big, big part of what we were seeing. And we knew we could, we, are, we always know we could be at risk for contracting whatever it is, right. Um, but When there's so much unknown, you really worry a lot about your family and everything else. And, you know, for many people, um, my neighbor is a resident in Asheville Children's and she was given, you know, one mask for the entire week. And for her friends uh, who were doing the intubations, someone's husband created a plastic cover since they really just didn't feel like they had good, strong protection, that when they do the intubations, which is a very aerosolized procedure, um, they were fully covered, you know, cover the patient with plexiglass so that they weren't exposed as much. And there was a huge shortage of available gowns and gloves and masks. We didn't see people for an entire week who were sick because my office wasn't ready. I didn't I certainly wasn't didn't feel that I had enough protection and we wanted to put the protocols in place to be able to protect our staff and do it in a way that we felt was safe. So early on I think all my friends who work in the ERs and in the ICUs they were lacking in their protective wear and it was really alarming.
2: As somebody who is not in the medical profession, I really can't imagine how it felt. I mean, I felt helpless each time we saw those cases rising dramatically. You know, now we look back and we can see where the peak was. But at the time, it felt like, oh, my gosh, when is this going to end? Will it ever end? Will cases just keep rising? You know, I felt helpless. I can't imagine how you felt as a doctor. I can't imagine how people felt on the front lines. I absolutely can't imagine watching people suffocate to death. I mean, this is just it to me it's horrifying. I can't really I can't really put myself in your shoes.
0: So, it's not just watching people suffocate because we've seen that. It's the volume. So, for example, in New York, the volume of people or people who couldn't get care fast enough who were just in the hallways and them having to be by themselves. So it's a lot more than just seeing someone suffer, because we see people suffer a lot in medicine. But seeing huge numbers of people suffering, and them being alone, especially if they're children. I mean, I I think that was where a lot of people really lost it. I mean, you heard about the woman who committed suicide. I mean, I think this just pushed a lot of people over their edge because it was the suffering was just beyond anything they had ever seen. Absolutely.
1: Um. In addition to not having enough PPE and not having enough um, equipment um, around here, and I'm not sure if it was that way, nationally, but I've I've read that it did happen um, throughout the country, we had a real lack of doctors. So there were doctors around here who were working just day after day after day after day without any break, because they're they're just we in our area, there just aren't enough doctors who were trained to do uh, cardiac work and who are trained to do. Um, is it thoracic work? With, uh, you know, the ventilators, it's I, they just there just was not we just don't have the the staff. And so in addition to having a shortage of equipment, we also had a shortage of people. Um, it, Did you see that a lot and has that eased or is that still going on? And we are just numb to it.
0: In the very beginning, when there was the crisis in New York and everyone was sort of like, oh, the New Yorkers must be doing everything wrong. You know, it was really tough on them, but there were so many resources in the country that people went to them. So they built all these extra hospital tents, you know, and people, doctors and nurses and respiratory technicians, and everyone went to New York to help. And then, you know, around the holidays, when it was sort of like the whole country, there was no one extra anywhere. Because there were hot spots throughout California, again in New York, again everywhere, and everyone was kind of at max capacity. And it was like, sure, you could build a tent, but there would be nobody to staff it. You can have all of the mechanical tools, you can have beds, you can have tents, but you need people to run it. And that is where we really fell short in Texas, California. Now, I think there are a lot there's been a huge easing of the hospitalizations, but I definitely think there are places where especially in rural America that were hit very hard, and if there's you know one e r for a hundred miles and two docs who are staffing it like there are in Rolla, north Dakota, you know that's pretty tough. That's gonna be a lot a lot a lot of work, especially since you know, a lot of Americans get their primary care through the emergency rooms. It's not only COVID. I mean, my son has broken his arm once during the pandemic. Other things do happen during COVID. So, and all those other things are still happening in the background. It's not like hospitals are, are have just, you know, extra staff just in case there's a pandemic. They run pretty lean in order to be Profitable and efficient. And so, when you then, on top of all the regular things, have this um, pandemic and this need, that's why they were cutting out so many elective surgeries and so many other things, just so that there was the availability of staff to try to handle it.
2: Ida, I have an intuition about this, but I'm not a scientist and I'm not a doctor. So, uh, but I, I assume this is the case that people do better in most situations in life, but certainly when it comes to healing, when they are around people they love and when they have support and they have a whole system of a family, you know, kin, friends, etc. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, you mentioned earlier, the pain of watching people have to go through it alone, watching kids have to go through it alone. Can you talk a, a little bit about sort of the, the double jeopardy of, of being sick and also being put through that kind of stress of not having the support system you normally would have?
0: If you're not feeling well, whether it's psychological or physically, you want to be supported. You want to be around others, even if you can just hold their hand. So that is has been very powerful. And And what I have seen in my patients, especially early on, the ones who were sick last March and April, when we still didn't know a lot and they were isolated, let's say in their own bedrooms and the rest of their families were in the rest of the house, you know, they would go on to the internet and read all about this and they would be afraid to fall asleep because they were worried they may not wake up in the morning. And it was the anxiety that was just totally crippling for some people is really hard to wrap your head around if you haven't been through it and I saw it over and over and over again and it was really really difficult and I would talk to them late at night and I would say okay now read a book don't get on the internet don't read about all the horror stories you know just worry like stay in your own zone and I'll talk to you in the morning but it's really hard to talk people off that ledge. And, um, you know, being alone and being alone with your own thoughts or your device is really, really, I think it magnifies everything. Um, But, you know, that doesn't even compare to being in the hospital and maybe worrying about, you know, being intubated, being told you're going to be intubated and having to have your final conversation with somebody over FaceTime. I mean, I have many friends who are nurses or doctors who have helped these patients have those conversations. And I think that might be some of the hardest is um, those final conversations, all the psychological and emotional aspects of this pandemic. I think there has been a ton of PTSD for people, either the caregivers, you know, as healthcare workers or patients who have survived, it's not going to be easy. We're going to be unpacking this for a long, long, long time.
1: You know, along those lines, I think because this has gone on so long, um, you know, short, I think, for your average pandemic, I don't even know what that is, but it, you know, everyone is, is sort of ooing and eyeing about how quickly the vaccine was was found and, and can be duplicated and and is now being dispensed and, and all of that's fantastic, but it's, you know, we're, we're coming up on a year right now, um, since it first came to the United States. And, um, there's probably human nature of being, of growing sort of inured to the fear and the pain and you just keep on going and, and you just go day after day. Um, but what I found was when my my father got the vaccine, I burst into tears because I was so happy and I had not realized how scared I was for him until he got the vaccine. And then it struck me, oh, wow, I have been taking all this fear and just shoving it down and not thinking about it. But that that reaction that I had showed me how much I was carrying around. and. So if you multiply that out by, you know, people who are worried about their family members and worried about, you know, themselves and and everything, we may be, I think you're right about the PTSD. I, I think we're all walking through life right now. And I think we might not be aware of some of the things that we're carrying with us.
0: Oh, 100%. 100%. I know um, one of my good friends who's a pediatrician here in town she and I both did the Moderna clinical trial last summer, and we didn't know if we had gotten the placebo or the real deal. And um, right, like I want to say, early December, she through one of the hospitals that she's affiliated with was offered the Pfizer vaccine. So she called up the the clinical investigator and said, "Hey, I've been offered a vaccine. What should I do?" So they unblinded her and they told her that, oh, I'm even going to get emotional telling this, but that she had gotten the vaccine and she said she cried. I mean, she just, and it. And you're right, like it wasn't about the vaccine. I mean, she was thrilled to find out that she'd gotten it, but it was just like, we've been going, just drinking from a fire hose for so long. And then- it was just this overwhelming relief to know that, oh, wow, this is actually happening. Like it worked, I got it, now it's being offered and this is gonna end someday. I mean, I would have loved for it to have ended in December, but this will end. And it's been a lot on so, so many people. And whether it's that, you know, you're disgusted with what your friends are doing on Instagram or what's happening. You're unhappy with the schools. Either your kids aren't in enough or there's no one's masking in your community. I mean, whatever it is, we are carrying a lot around and we just want to go back to where things were. And we're not going to go back there entirely for a little bit, but um, I think everyone just needs to, release all of that right
2: this is extremely heartbreaking and i certainly hate that you have to relive a lot of this so maybe we can pivot and talk a little bit about some of the more uplifting aspects of the pandemic some of the things you and your colleagues might have done to pump each other up and and keep each other going and inspire each other to to keep on fighting each day
0: there's been a small community. I, I'm involved in a larger group that meets uh, about once a month here. And we um, talk about clinical stories that we've had. And um, and I've also, I'm a part of a women's um, doctor group that meets twice a year. And we have dinner together and um, network basically. And both of those groups, there has... Um, evolved into little smaller pockets where we've helped each other with PPE. I mean, I remember when I first found like 20 face shields and I was driving around to my friend's practices and I was like, here you go, because I have extra. I only need one. Right. And, um, you know, which labs are we using for PCRs and which ones are faster and, and have a better turnaround or lower cost. And, um, you know, one one of my friend's groups didn't want to do any testing. So she was sending everyone to my office and um, it's been unbelievable how much support we've given each other. And I, I practice, I'm the, I, it's me and a nurse practitioner and she is wonderful, but it's not the same as being in a hospital and having the support of all, so many of your peers. And so a lot of my friends who are in smaller groups We've banded together because other people, you know you you just need to vent and you need to ask questions from each other. I mean, just today, I was talking with a pediatrician to bounce ideas off of, you know, this divorced parents and which positive cases go where and how long are they isolated? I mean, it's complicated. And so we we really are helping each other. and now with trying to get the vaccine, We've shared, you know, who to talk to in the DC Department of Health. What's the website? And have you heard this? And what have you heard? And it's really um, been unbelievably productive to share information because I'm a huge believer in I do not want to reinvent the wheel. If someone else has figured something out, I want to do what they're doing. I want to copy it. And if I've figured something out, I want to share it so that they don't have to waste their time doing what I did to figure it out. You know, we're, we're all in this together. And, um, there's, there's very little competition when we're trying to just get through this.
1: I have a, um, I have a fairly serious question, which is that I know that it's important to stay healthy in all of this. It's just important, you know, mental health, physical health. Um, But I'm asking for a friend. When it's cold outside and you can work out in your basement because going to a gym seems really awful, um, and you've gained some weight, that's okay, right? You're (laughs) a doctor. You can you can speak to this. That's all right, right? Like we're all we're all going to gain a couple pounds here, right? That's okay.
2: I would also like to know the answer to this question for a friend.
1: Only are going to gain nineteen. it's called the COVID-19. <laughs> okay, thank you. So that is the, okay, we have it from a doctor. That is the parameter. If you keep it within 19 pounds, that is okay. Cool. Thank you. I have it now on medical authority, COVID-19.
2: I'm writing that down. Why keep was I unlucky it? enough to get 19? the COVID-47 over here? <laughs>
1: <laughs> because you got the Ben and Jerry's variant and and that affects you differently. I got the
2: fish food variants. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's good.
1: <laughs> I have seen now so many people who have had it, and there is such a wide range of symptoms from, you know, really being sort of down for the count to being completely asymptomatic. Why does this virus affect people so differently?
0: Well, so that's a million dollar question. And I can't give you the scientific answer, but, you know, if you listen to some of the experts, they will tell you that there's no such thing as a totally asymptomatic case. And I thought that was interesting the first time I heard this, because, you know, some people are down for the count and other people are just sort of, you know, they don't, they don't notice a thing. Now, if you really dig deep and you ask them, they might have a symptom or two, but they just, Blow that off and don't even pay attention to it. So, number one, I do think that everyone responds differently to similar ailments. Although there there is a huge um, diversity of, you know, how people are affected. So, some people really do just have a normal upper respiratory infection, whereas other people are hospitalized. So, it's uh, there is clinical objective differences, and that you know may or may not have to do with comorbidities. Um, And there's a lot that we can't predict. So for example, all this stuff with kids now, you know, the um, inflammatory response, why do some people get long COVID and other people don't? I know an orthopedic surgeon who didn't really have a significant illness, but he had brain fog and he didn't want to operate for about three months after his infection. And The actual infection itself wasn't a big deal, but he was just kind of out of it. And this is someone who's used to being on his game, you know, and, um, and so we don't know those answers. And I think, I think some of it has to do with our body's own immune system and the inflammatory response and how, you know, why do some people lose their smell and some people don't, that has to do probably with inflammation of the nerve endings and, um, there is not a simple answer, but it is
1: fascinating. What have you seen um, boots on the ground? What have you seen in terms of misinformation and fear and how have you worked to allay this? And this can either be about COVID itself or about vaccines. I mean, whichever direction you want to go in.
0: That's a complicated question. So COVID itself um, has just a myriad of responses. Some people think it's no big deal. It's a rite of passage. And um they, you know, keep going on with whatever it is they want to do because it's, you know, like the flu. And other people have a tremendous amount of anxiety just in terms of the fear of the unknown. And um and I think you know, it's, and it's also become a stigma and, you know, everything about it is extremely complicated and everything that it's imposing on people who want to be, you know, follow the rules is is very difficult for a lot of people because it means they're homebound and they need socialization or whatever it is. I mean, it's been, there's, it's, it's very difficult, but then with the vaccine, Um, that has its own interesting layer because you can take a lot of really, really mainstream smart people who definitely don't want the vaccine. And it's, it's, you know, even a lot of people who are in the medical field, for example, who work in these nursing homes or who are, um, you know, these frontline workers, a lot of them do not want this vaccine. And this goes to how they were raised, right? So you're not necessarily going to be able to turn that around in one conversation. And so for those 30 million that you mentioned who don't have access to their own doctor, um, I think trying to reach out through church communities is, has been a really great idea. Um, but I don't think that those people are going to feel all warm and fuzzy by going to their Walgreens or CVS or mass, you know, site either. I mean, I think if you already know you want the vaccine, then those places are great. But if you're teetering or you need convincing, then you need to get that from your community and You know, one of the things that I talk about in some of my more recent posts is, hey, none of you all are probably in the group yet. So instead of like trying to get into the group that's going to get vaccinated or to figure out how you're going to go and wait for an extra dose at some safe way, maybe you could spend your time making sure everyone in your family or extended family has had their questions answered. And what can you do? I mean, my one of my girlfriends just reached out to me today and she said, oh, my mom In North Carolina, she's gotten her first dose. She's refusing to get her second one. She's convinced it's not safe now. Like, is there anything, can you give me any pointers? So I've sent her a video that Hopkins put out about how this vaccine is made. And, you know, just there's sort of some talking points to try to not bash her into getting it, but convince her that this is the right thing to do, particularly when the her this woman's husband is homebound with MS and he's more vulnerable you know so there are reasons to get it for yourself and then there are reasons to get it for others and let's use this opportunity now to try to educate our friends and neighbors
2: I think we all have the experience of you know one week seeing a study come out in the newspaper that says wine is good for you and Allie buys another box Right. And then <laughs> I'm the sorry, next...
1: I buy two boxes. <laughs> All right. I'm going to be very careful. The giant straw. That's exactly right.
2: <laughs> and, you know, the next week you you see a study uh, where it says, well, you know, wine was actually bad for you. It's probably going to kill you. It's like, oh, my God, why didn't you call that wine? Uh, and so I think that's more a failing of the people who are disseminating the information than it is of science itself. I think an important part of trusting vaccines is being scientifically literate. So, we can have a very brief conversation about this. One of the things you do, the first thing you do when you finish a study and you you feel like it's um, really solid and you want to be published is you send it to an academic journal and the editors of that journal, they take your name off of it. This is called blinding it and they send it to two or three experts in the field who examine your methods, make sure that your methods were rigorous. They examine your results and make sure that your interpretations of your results are actually following from your results, that you aren't interpreting your results in some really kind of problematic way. And then your your study would be published. But that's only one of the guardrails. So in the case of the mistaken belief that vaccines cause autism, there was a study that got through the peer review process. It shouldn't have, but it got through the peer-review process. But that's only one of the guardrails. So the next guardrail is dissemination to the scientific community. So Once it's published then, scientists look at it, they have a conversation about it, and if it contradicts everything that's been done before, they will try to replicate it. You know, if it's experimental, they'll try to replicate the experimental settings and see if this thing happens in the same manner again and again and again, and if it doesn't ask the question why, Um, if it's some other kind of research design, you you replicate it and see if if the same results happen again. And if a study comes along that contradicts everything that has come before, it doesn't make it good or bad, just inherently that it contradicts everything that's been done before, but it needs to hold up, right? So, maybe they did something differently in terms of research design that makes us think, well, you know what? We were studying things wrong before. This study shows us we should, we should actually be studying it in a different way or maybe not. Maybe they were studying it in a really poor, problematic way. Maybe the research design was really flawed. And we shouldn't trust this one study and it contradicted the previous research because it was done more poorly than the previous research, right? So, this is the larger conversation that scientists are having and it's not necessarily the failing of science that that Wakefield study made it through. It shouldn't have made it through peer review, but it was caught, you know, and it was replicated and, and folks found that it couldn't be replicated and therefore, in the larger conversation of science, we said, no, um, this doesn't actually hold up. This, this contradiction of our previous knowledge doesn't actually hold up so you need really responsible actors to disseminate that information to the public now I think a lot of the really good media outlets do that but unfortunately a lot of partisan media outlets don't and and of course social media you know disseminates a lot of really bad information in this regard Ida can you talk a little bit about vaccines and um, you know whether or not we should trust them and, and just sort of you know, a general reflection on that?
0: Yes, absolutely. So I, a big part of my practice used to be travel medicine. And a big part of travel medicine is vaccines. Because when you're going to a lot of these developing countries, you need vaccines before you go either because they're mandated, like the yellow fever vaccine, or because they're recommended because there's higher rates of typhoid, you know, the Those are, for example, illnesses that we don't have in this country. And so I I grew up, my dad was in the Foreign Service and I was born in Ethiopia and later lived in Sudan and different parts of Africa. And so I grew up with tons of vaccines. And when you come to, when you're in a country that's developed and that has um, not seen things like measles or varicella or you know, fill in the blank. You don't even know what half of these illnesses are and generations past where no one's experienced it. It's a luxury to say, oh, wait, I, I mean, who gets measles? We don't need to worry about that because it's just not on anyone's radar. Now, vaccines have been life-changing for so many parts of the world, including our own. We just don't have a recent memory of this because you know our grandparents who had polio aren't really around it enough anymore for us to recognize that polio was a huge problem in people's lifetimes or just outside of our lifetimes. So vaccines are incredibly important. Yes, they have side effects. So the vaccine's, Especially that we're giving to children, they go through much more rigorous, um, you know, testing than medications. Because medications, we are we already realize there's a problem, and we're trying to fix the problem. Vaccines are held to a much higher standard because, in a lot of cases, there is no problem, so we don't want to create one. So whenever we're deciding whether to do things in medicine, we're trying to weigh what are the risks versus the benefits. And we want to make sure that all the risks far out, you know, are really low and that the benefits are really high. You know, if you've got a terminal illness like cancer, you're willing to take chemotherapeutic drugs that could bring you, you know, that could do make you lose all your hair or make you feel really lousy because you want to do anything to save your life. But when you've got healthy people who may or may not, like think of kids and, and COVID-19, most of them are sail right through. So we want something that's very safe so that there's really minimal risk because if the disease itself isn't terribly risky, other than they could give it to older people, then you know we have to realize all of this. So vaccines play a very important role, but we have to make sure that they are studied enough so that we know the safety and we know that the outcomes are certainly gonna be better than if we just let the disease run rampant. Does that make sense?
1: It does. So as quickly as this vaccine was created, how can we still be sure of its safety?
0: Okay, so that's a little bit misleading. This, for instance, the um, Moderna and the Pfizer mRNA technology has been in the works for over 20 years. So that's not new technology at all. Now, this is the first time a vaccine has come to market, but this idea has been around for a long time. Now, as you, I'm sure, know, ideas for them to come to fruition take money. So this now what happened was, is you had governments and you had private, some private money like, you know, the Gates Foundation, but you had a lot of people that said, whoa, 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 we need something and we need it fast. And while it's being, you know, put through the clinical trials, let's go ahead and make it. Let's just throw all this money at all these different vaccines and hope that one or two, maybe three out of 20 is going to work. So we're just gonna buy millions of vaccines and, and just cross our fingers, right? So they threw a ton of money. So all of a sudden, these companies were like, oh, wow, I finally have funding. I mean, do you guys have research projects in your head? And you're like, oh, if I just had the money, I could do that. And then what if someone gave you like $100 million and they were like, do everything that's in your head. And then you you would say, Great, yeah, I can do this, no problem. I can just throw money at the at everything. And then it seems like it's quick, but you've been thinking about it for maybe 10 years. So it's not new in the sense of like it was just developed out of nowhere in six months. Does that? So that, you know, is important to understand. The other thing about these vaccines and just sort of in broad numbers here is you know they say, they say around 27 million people have had, in the united states have had their first vaccine and that's roughly about the same number of people that have had covid and we've had over 450,000 deaths from covid not to speak about all the other long covid symptoms that some people have been having struggling with for 6 plus months So there's not only morbidity and mortality, but when you look at that same number of people who have gotten the vaccines, you have a handful of anaphylactic reactions, which we know and are ready for and and we can treat. And then you have some very obvious side effects, which are akin to the shingles vaccine side effects. You're gonna have some achy body aches, some fever, so maybe some chills, And it's probably going to last for about 24 to 36 hours. And it's nothing like getting COVID.
2: Ida, there had been warning signs, right? Like people for years had said, you know, eventually we're going to have another pandemic. Did you think we were sort of caught maybe flat-footed?
0: Oh, I mean, 250%. Absolutely. We have not as a country been investing in not only our public health, but in preparing for this, which we've known for decades was gonna happen. And you could say the same about our infrastructure. I mean, we know that bridges are gonna collapse here at some point because they were made so long ago and we just keep kicking the can. We definitely did that with this pandemic and I'm sure there's gonna be another one. You know, I, Ebola, when that happened, I when this first occurred, I kind of thought this was going to be like MERS or SARS or Ebola, and it was just going to be something in China. And we weren't going to have to deal with it because it's only developing countries that have to deal with these things. It's never in the United States. And then when it spread like wildfire everywhere, that's when I think everyone stood up and took notice and was like, wait a minute, we have a playbook for this. Let's get out, you know, the National Reserve. Let's get out all those N95s. Oh, whoops. Whoops. They're worn out, or they the you know elasticity is broken, or we haven't replenished this in too long, and everything's expired. I mean, it was unfortunately a perfect storm of not preparing
1: um, and then sort of floundering. Can we talk a little bit about the vaccine? And I know that there are questions about kind of the rollout and and how this is all going. But I want to talk about what happens after people get the vaccine, because there's such a difference in when different members of families will get it. And so there's huge confusion. And, And I was talking to my sister because she's a. Um, social worker, and so she was able to get it. She's in group one, and and I'm in group one because I'm a professor. And so, you know, both of us will get it, but our spouses won't have it, and our kids won't have it. So, when, like, when is it okay for us to see each other? I guess that's question number one.
0: So uh, I've had it, you know, since last August, and um, although I didn't find out until December, and I'll be honest, not. There hasn't really been anything that's changed in my life at all. And I don't think there will be a significant change until we all get it. Not every single person, but almost all of the country gets it. So I think we're looking at now, maybe end of July is what I've been hearing, is when Everybody who wants a dose is going to have it available to them. So hopefully that will be what Lawrence described earlier as, you know, the herd immunity. Everyone will either have had the illness or perhaps have the um, immunity from the vaccine. And then I think we can do a lot more inside gathering. Now, you specifically and your sister, I mean, I have a really good friend who is a doctor who's had it. She and her husband have both had it. and. We still wear masks when we go on walks outside because she could still get it, not get sick and die from it, but get the, the uh, one of us could still get it. And then we transmit it to our children who are not vaccinated yet. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that is the risk that you run. Now, if you're just a single person and you, uh, and and she were just a single person and we didn't live in a household with other people who weren't vaccinated then I would probably feel more comfortable doing that, but not yet, not yet. I said the same thing with my aunt and uncle who have both had two vaccines. You know, they want to get together with other people in their building who have had both vaccines. And I just don't feel
1: comfortable with that yet. Really? So they can't, so even though they've both been vaccinated and their friends have been vaccinated, it's still a no-go? Yes. Because they could... Why? Actually, is that because they're you're afraid that the vaccine isn't super effective, or because they still could spread it to other people?
0: So yeah, so this these new variants are making me slightly nervous. So I don't know if um, there's a story that uh, theirs, that people that they know, clients of theirs who are down in Florida, all have had both vaccines and were gathered outside for lunch after a golf golfing outing. And sure enough, one of them got it from one of the other golfers and they've all been vaccinated. So there are cases where you can still get it. And I, you know, I think until we just get this viral load down as a country, we're not gonna be able to be inside yet with others, even if we've all been vaccinated. I just, I personally don't feel comfortable. But Ali, let me tell you that a lot of, Doctors disagree with me. There was just an interview I saw, I think it was CNN, where they interviewed, you know, six different doctors and you got three different answers on what people feel comfortable with. I'm on the
1: conservative end. Can you talk a little bit about kids getting the vaccine? Why that either is or is not going to happen? Is that a problem for families? Can you discuss that a little bit?
0: So kids are definitely going to get this vaccine, but kids' immune systems are different. And like I was talking about, since this virus seems to affect children themselves in a less um, you know, virulent way, the, the standard of the vaccine for children is different than it is for adults, meaning we really want to make sure that this vaccine is carefully looked at in children. So Pfizer right now is approved for 16 and above. They've already finished their um, enrolling for their 12 and above, 12 through 16 um, group. And I think that data is hopefully going to be coming out in the next month or two. And then Moderna, it has ongoing trials for 12 through 18, um, uh, but those are probably going to be a month or two after the release of the Pfizer data. So right now and around the world, they're looking at 12 and up. And then I think the next group is going to be six through 12. But, you know, the immune system of children develops differently. So you can't just really assume that you can cut the dose in half. We don't, that, that sometimes is, ends up being what works for like hepatitis A or, you know, hepatitis B, but not always. So we want to make sure that the dosage is right, that it's effective and it's safe. Most, the most important is the safety for children. That's really, really important. And and this is going to be happening. And I'm really hopeful that by the time school starts, kids are going to be vaccinated because that's going to be very important for families, for teachers, for children, for everybody.
2: Ida, what do you see as the possibility? And I hope I hope it's really, really low. But what do you see as the possibility of COVID being here to stay and being something that we deal with yearly?
0: Oh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, COVID is here to stay. That is with us now. And um, what, but it's not gonna be like this. So we may be looking at having to get an annual vaccine. You know, what we really want is for the cases to to have no place to go. So as many people that are immune, either from having had the illness or having had the vaccine, the virus doesn't have a home. And if it doesn't have a home, it can't keep hopping from person to person. So we need those cases to be lower. And then this will be maybe in the background. I don't know if it's going to be like the flu and evolve into a seasonal thing, but you know, Ebola is still around. They're talking about a new Ebola outbreak. MERS is actually still around, you know, things and, and so is measles. So But we're not panicked about it. We can protect ourselves. And it's a low, you know, if there's only a few cases, we can control it. We can contact trace. We can quarantine. You can't quarantine 100,000 people a day, you know, and contact trace throughout a country. That just doesn't work. But but SARS-CoV-2 is now with us, but it won't be looking like this.
2: Ida, how much do these new strains, these new variants of the disease worry you? And um, I guess, just what are your thoughts on on where those are headed?
0: So the variants are are interesting and very real, and there are three that are being talked about right now: the UK, the South African, and the Brazilian. And the U- all of them appear to be more contagious, which means more cases and ultimately means probably more deaths but the south african might also escape a little bit of our vaccines not all of it the vaccines are still going to work but maybe not as well the uk one the vaccines appear to still be very good against the uk strain but this strain might be more uh, have more a higher death rate so that might be a little bit more dangerous. And quite frankly, there are probably a lot other more uh, other strains lurking around the globe that we just don't know about. And the Biden administration just announced, I believe it was today, about $200 million to fund following the genomics of this virus. So Iceland, for example, has been following the genomics since day one. Every single positive test, they look at the genomics and they are watching, because most of all these mutations are meaningless. They die out, you know? It's, it's sort of like survival of the fittest, but some of them proliferate and it's because they make the virus more streamlined or can last longer, more virulent, more contagious, whatever it is. So we're talking about three main ones now, but there are probably others. And it's so important for us to keep track of this because if we know what's out there, then we can perhaps easily tweak these vaccines and get a quick booster every six months for whatever might be the predominant strain or eventually maybe it'll help us in the treatments. But right now, we, we, we're we still flying a little bit blind. We have so many better tests, but being able to add the genomics to those tests is just gonna really open our eyes up to what's out there and I think can only be beneficial.
1: What are some of the COVID or COVID adjacent developments that are actually uh, pretty exciting, something that's making you happy?
0: Well, there are a few things. So the testing of course has gotten a lot better and labs now have more capacity and they can turn these around a lot faster. And the FDA about a month ago uh, approved a rapid test that people can do in the comfort of their own home. You could buy it at the drugstore. It's not available yet. It's going to be about 30 bucks. It's still too expensive. What we need and what is available but not FDA approved are these really dirt cheap tests that are similar to like uh, even cheaper than a urine pregnancy test that you could buy, let's say a pack of 50, they're a buck a piece, and they're just a piece of cardboard and you basically spit on them. Michael Mina up at Harvard has been talking about these since last July when he and an economist wrote a piece for the New York Times and talked about if we could all have these in our homes and spit on it every morning and know whether we can go to work, our kid can go to school, we can leave our house, it would be an enormous game changer. The problem is, is that these tests, they're, you know, they're, everyone wants the super sensitive test. So the sensitivity has to be 99%, you know, and these are not that sensitive, but they're cheap and they're good. In fact, they're good enough so that they may not show that I'm positive when a PCR is gonna show that I'm positive, but they're gonna show that I'm positive if I do it every day or every other day when it counts, when I'm contagious. Does that make sense? So it's a bit of a paradigm shift because we're so used to these amazing quality tests. And what turns out from a public health perspective is we don't need a test as good as the PCR. What we just need something to be accessible and cheap enough for everybody to use on a daily basis to help guide us. Something like that, I think, would be extremely pivotal in changing the dynamics of this pandemic.
2: Ida, this has been a wonderful conversation. This was amazing. We can't thank you enough for coming.
0: Well, I really enjoyed talking to you guys. This was great. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for
1: having me. Thanks so much. Well, that was a great conversation. And there was a lot that was scary and there was a lot that was sad um, but there was also much that was hopeful and so I'm leaving this uh, I remain I remain optimistic and I think uh, Ida gave us a lot to think about and also really work towards
2: oh absolutely that was a wonderful conversation and Ida can now be proud that she was, the first guest to make both of us cry. I know, really.
1: <laughs> Someone had to. I'm glad yeah. it was I'm glad it was Dr. Burks. I'm glad
2: it wasn't me making you cry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, never gonna happen.
2: Well, before we go, there's a few things we wanna do. We wanna first say hi to our listeners who are, I guess, all over the globe at this point. Uh, We know that we're on in most states now, so thank you to all of our supporters for listening. We'll keep on putting on episodes and hope you stick with us. We're also on now in how many countries, Allie? Is it 10 countries? I believe it is 10 in addition to the United States. So let's see. So we're on in the UK. Hello. France. Bonjour. Nepal.
1: Namaskara. Germany. Guten tag. Lebanon, Marhaba, Aruba, Bon dia, Ecuador, Hola,
2: Russia, Privet, and Japan. Konnichiwa. I mean, we're just amazed that we're being listened to in so many different countries. We're just really happy that a lot of folks are seeking the same kinds of things we are, which is basically to, you know, turn the noise down a bit. Uh, cut away the the bias and and all the spin and and get to the facts and uh you know, we just kind of feel like if if n p r could just be a little less rude, you I know? mean,
1: they really, really need to tone it down a bit, but well, we, we like, like to see ourselves as the the more civilized n p r yeah. we're just calmer,
2: yeah, you know, if they were just more responsible, and more civil <laughs> in the discourse, <laughs> that would be us,
1: they're getting a little spicy.
2: Well, and the other thing we should do before we leave is talk about the website. So if you go to utterlymoderate.com and go to the episode archive, you can find all of the episodes of Utterly Moderate, but not just the episodes. You can also find all of the companion resources. So there's only so much we can do in an hour, or an hour and 15 minutes, and we try to cover all the bases. But there's always much more information that could help you get to a deeper understanding of these topics. So check that out at the episode archive. As I said, the episodes are there along with the companion resources. We also have some brain food on the website, so lots of good reads and lots of good videos to watch. We have more from Allie and I and our academic work that we do that's linked there and much more. So go to utterlymoderate.com. You know where to reach us because you're listening to us at the moment, but uh, we're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and more. Or again, you can just go listen to us at utterlymoderate.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate all the support. And we hope to, like I said, keep on putting out great episodes and and having great conversations. And we hope you'll join us next time. So thanks thanks for coming.
1: Thanks, everyone. Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully.